Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, selling the Bayside Exposition Center could help UMass Boston, but what will it do for the surrounding neighborhoods? A Brockton Jr. planner says he can no longer afford to live in Brockton, and a longtime Springfield police officer fails three drug tests, but he's still on the force. It's our local news roundtable. Later in the show, our local construction industry is booming, but where are the skilled workers? The average age of a carpenter, last time I checked, was 48, 50 years old. So a lot of these trades are aging out, and we need to replace that with emerging young talent. The Construction Mentor Program is working toward closing that gap by ushering in a new generation of young, diverse, and experienced laborers into the Massachusetts construction industry. But first, joining me in the studio, Gen Dupchus, Statehouse reporter for Mass Live. Welcome back, Gen. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Smith, news editor for the Dorchester Reporter. Hello again, Jennifer. Hi, Callie. And our own Mike Dean, Statehouse reporter for WGBH News. Welcome, Mike. Hell He's yeah. not often in the building. So I know. We're excited it's a, it's to have a him. Rare, <laughs> a rare studio appearance. <laughs> yes. So, again, I'm starting with you because my heart did a little drop about this uh, story you have about the MBTA's plan for free late night bus service. Well, it's on shaky ground. I'm still very hopeful. Yeah, and this was actually something that uh, Mike uh, first reported uh, when it was first proposed about a month ago, I want to say. Yeah. And basically what what the thrust of this is, I think the previous attempts to provide late night service were very much geared towards college students, the, the young folks who want to get around the city late at night. And what the aim of this specific proposal was like, you know what, there's workers who need to get around. They have to get home. Uh, They work in the restaurants, hospitals, low wage workers, and they need a way to get home, too. So the MBTA put out a a request for basically they were testing the waters to see outside contractors if they would be willing to take this up and do this one route that runs from, I believe, from Revere to Mattapan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mattapan Um, Square. Mattapan Square. And, you know, it would go about every 30 minutes or so a bus would go. And unfortunately, no outside contractors made a bid. Now, part of that is this would cost $2 million and there would be no fare. And the reason that is, is because the money would cost to build out a system to capture that revenue. It would basically uh, render it null and void. The MBTA general manager, uh, Luis Manuel Ramirez, he still wants to make it work. He thinks this is something that should be done, uh, particularly because of those workers who need to get home from work. So we're going to have to see what happens with that. Well, I agree that it's past time for a late night tea service to service both the workers and if it helps other people, too. That's great, too, because I think it's ridiculous to be a big city, Mike, and not, mm-hmm. not have that. You know? yeah, absolutely. It's it's part of this is the T's insistence that it be private. Uh, mm-hmm. As Gin said, they they put out a, a bid document to try to get private companies to come back and say, yes, we can do this for the $2 million using our, their own buses. So the uh, bus company would come up and say, we're going to use our buses, we're going to use our staff, we're going to use our maintenance to get this done. That's part of the reason why the fare collection can't be you know utilized.
realize because they don't have fare boxes and they have to install them. If the T were to take this on themselves, they would be able to capture that fare and they would be able to do it in-house, so to speak, but it would probably cost a heck of a lot more than the $2 million the T is and willing to pay. And they get because we got some other issues for the T to address, right? Yeah, and uh, the Baker administration <laughs> does not, yeah. they do not fancy expanding service at this time. I think mm-hmm. the board and Ramirez see the need for this type of thing. Um, they are willing to do a, a very small-scale pilot that's getting described, but um, you know they're really not putting their own bus resources uh, into anything outside of the core system right now. Did you want to add something? Yeah, I, I just wanted, they, yeah. they are they are making a slight tweak to about ten routes. They are starting buses earlier because mm-hmm. they're seeing demand for that. So in the early morning hours uh, before like five, 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they're starting. Uh, uh, I think one of them is in Fields Corner, uh, goes from Fields Corner to Back Bay. So that is a, a separate from this proposal to provide late night service. But they are trying to make some more bridges, alleviate that crowding very early in the morning. Well, I don't understand. I do understand. I know there's money issues, Jennifer. And we have to deal with them, and we're still catching up from a backlog of aging equipment. I get that part, so I'm not completely. And that's naive. a problem all over the system it is. too. It is, but having said that, this is so much a part of Boston's character. Let's not even. And the need is there on top of it, and plus, we're reaching out to the Amazons, the Apples, the everybody. You know, those people who come in here, I know they Uber a lot, but they take the bus too. Right. I mean, they. <laughs> you need to have the option to have a flexible way to get home in the middle of the night. Every time I come in here, I obviously throw it back to Utah because that's where I was. But their equivalent of that is all of the buses shut down except for one entire citywide bus that tracks this incredibly long, winding, snaking route. It's not a quick trip by any means, and it's not nearly as regular as normal bus service. But you can't just leave workers out in the middle of a city, especially if you're Boston and trying to, as you said, Mm -hmm. make the case that people should be bringing in their workforces and then say if it's past a certain hour of the night, looks like at the same time that we're decrying the rise of Uber and Lyft, you're going to have to take that. Which is a really big deal. And I don't know, maybe there's no impact, but the governor said on our air this past week that, you know, he doesn't have time to pledge to ride the T so that he would get the full experience of the everyday person because he has a schedule to keep. Of course, I heard the echoes of many people trying to get to work saying, yeah, me too. <laughs> That's yeah, why I, I want this thing to work. Every time there's a delay, it's uh, there's just a ripple of everybody around the T shouting, I have to go somewhere. Everyone else goes, yeah, me too. <laughs> and, and I think the T is underappreciated somewhat as an economic driver. I think when we have these delays and when we, when we mm-hmm. have these problems, there's an economic cost tied to that. And I think because we're still very much in kind of a car-centric culture, I, I feel like that's changing a little bit. But because we're still very car-centric, we don't always think about that. Right. Well, think about the impact during the 2015 winter when the red yes. line was shutting down. And I spent a lot of time talking to folks who weren't ready for it. And they were saying, if the tea's not running, I can't get to three jobs I'm holding. That's right. So I guess I'm getting fired from one of them. You're all saying everything I totally agree with. I think this is such a valuable service. And I am hoping that one, you know, while we're giving out the incentives to whoever is coming in here with the big money, can't we ask them to invest too? I don't see why we can't. That's what I would do. Anyway, Jennifer, um, here's another interesting, long-going kind of controversial situation. UMass Boston has a whole bunch of issues uh, money-wise and repair rights to the campus, but now there are plans to either sell or lease the Bayside Exposition Center, and that perhaps would help help offset many of their 
money issues? Yeah, uh, UMass Boston's really been in a hard place lately. They've got some long-term repairs. They've got structural debts, millions and millions of dollars. And one thing that they've floated recently is the concept of selling off or leasing a long-term 99-year lease for the site that's the Bayside Exposition Center, which is a good 20 acres of this prime waterfront land. And the Expo Center has been demolished. And if they were to be able to leverage this into a sale, they could use the potentially hundreds of millions of dollars they get from that sale or the lease to reinvest in their campus. Now, the thing about it is there was a proposal floated for that site uh, last year that was met with some consternation from the locals, I think mildly. <laughs> um, this would be uh, the, uh, the Bob Kraft soccer stadium plan. Oh, right, the 20,000-seat right. yeah. soccer stadium plan that well, was yeah, being... That's being, different. <laughs> well, but the thing about it was they were trying to do this public partnership. The issue is they didn't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. So, so suddenly everyone was looking at what was being marketed as, again, a potentially really great thing money-wise for the campus, and everyone just went, shouldn't you tell us there's going to be a stadium before you try and drop it in here. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now they're marketing it and they put out a request for information to developers saying, look, take into account there's already been planning done in the area. This might want to be like a modern day assembly row, Harvard Square Mm. out here, have a tie in with the college campus. You've got new dorms. You've got people that would love to actually be out on the point. Let's see what we can do. So it's early stages yet, but they're hopeful and uh, folks are keeping an eye on it because of the stadium debacle. What do you think uh, neighborhoods over that way would appreciate? Obviously not a stadium. We know that now. But, Mike, what, what what's your sense of Yeah, I, I asked a number of um, mm-hmm. Savin Hill, Columbia area folks about this a few months ago after the collapse of the Kraft Soccer Stadium plan. And they want mixed use. They've, they've mm-hmm. had plans on the books for, you know, almost 20 years now. They've had large-scale meetings at UMass with uh, all the different players over the years. And I think there's a general consensus, a bit of what Jennifer's talking about, of a, a mixed-use area possibly with some condos, but also with some restaurant and retail space to really build it out into a a functioning retail area where people will live and go. And I think taking advantage of the waterfront there is a key part of that. A number of people say they want improvements to the park. There's a very thin strip of parkland that goes from Carson Beach all the way around Columbia Point to the the Harbor Walk. They say they want to keep that intact or even expand it onto what is now the demolished Expo Center. And I think, you know, they want a seafood food restaurant, <laughs> you know, things yeah. like that. Yeah. That was a one, one idea that was floated. So it, it's it's not anything earth shattering that the neighbors want out there. It's just finding that right balance of partnership and um, revenue. Well, I can say as a person on the outside looking at these developments in other neighborhoods, you know, you want different audiences. You could build that stadium. I'm never going there. I don't care what's there. I'm never going there because I don't want to be dealing with the parking, 90,000 people, just not appealing. But mixed use, now you're going to have two or three things in there, including a restaurant and probably some interesting little shops. I hope they support some local mom and pop shops, which I would go. Yeah, and it's know. right by the JFK UMass station. Exactly. So again, it gets to the issue of infrastructure. Is yeah. It's great to say we're right by the station. Trains need to run on time to get there. It's a spot that, when you think about it, should be developers should be chomping at the bit for because exactly. it's it's right off of 93. It's right by the red line. Uh, the commuter rail stops there too, and uh, you've got breathtaking harbor views just a, a few steps away. So it's it's one of those things where there's this is an area that's been. Uh, 
almost being planned to death because movement needs to happen. This building boom in Boston is not going to last forever. And if this isn't undertaken in the, in the, at the right time frame, then it could sit fallow for a long time before it picks up again. We don't want that kind of hole we had downtown for all those years. <laughs> Millennium time. Sat that millennial <laughs> hole. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Gen Doomshus, you just heard him, of Mass Live, Mike Dean of WGBH News, and Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. And we're discussing this week's local news that you may have missed. So, again, if the UMass Bayside plans come together in whatever form, one guy would like to be in charge of that. That's uh, Steve Crosby, who is currently the head of the Gaming Commission. He wants to head up UMass Boston? He does indeed. I got <laughs> tipped off to it earlier, and Chairman Crosby uh, returned my phone call and confirmed it. He's Now, he's the founding dean of the McCormick School at UMass Boston, so he knows the campus. But he was appointed to the Gaming Commission by Deval Patrick uh, when the Gaming Commission was getting up and running. And he says this is this is one of those opportunities he would like to take a look at. Now, just for background, the search is underway to find a new chancellor, and that's because UMass forced out Keith mm-hmm. Motley. The UMass officials said there's financial problems at, at, the, at the university there. I think there's some argument to be made about how liable UMass trustees were for that and bearing some of that burden because they're the ones who signed off on a lot of the budgets. But Keith Motley's situation aside, now they are looking for another chancellor. And Steve Crosby made phone calls, very interested in the job, uh, but he also realizes that uh, he's still got a term to serve out with the Gaming Commission. His term ends uh, in 2019, and they've got some big things on their plate. They're investigating wind resorts over the sexual misconduct allegations, and they've got uh, a Springfield casino opening. MGM is opening a casino uh, later this year, uh, which is a huge lift. And the wind resorts thing, if that goes forward, that will open next year. Uh, so he's got a lot of, on his plate there. The other factor is we've seen columns and we've we've seen uh, write-ups of this too. Keith Motley was a person of color. Mm-hmm. And I, as someone who was on that campus at the time when he was selected, that was a huge deal when he was mm-hmm. picked. It's a very diverse campus. And having a person of color leading that campus, uh, I think, means a lot to a lot of people, faculty and students. Um, so that, I would have to imagine, is a consideration for the search committee. I mean, he was there for 10 years and mm-hmm. there were there were downturns recently and that was part of part of the concern when he was being pushed out is uh, there was slight de- declining enrollment especially in the nursing program mm-hmm. which is kind of the the showstopper of the UMass Boston campus but yeah there's still quite a bit of of soreness around around his ouster because in a lot of ways the chancellor needs the approval of the trustees to sign off on the budget, but kind of heads up the visioning for for what happens at the school. And a lot of people do credit Keith Motley for saying that UMass Boston should be more than just a commuter school. It should be a destination, um, help push through the new dorms that are finally mm-hmm. opening up over there. So that's still a bit of a, a, bit of a consideration as they get ready to replace uh, Barry Mills, who was the interim chancellor. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who would not have to admit that Keith Motley raised the visibility of UMass Boston in significant ways, Uh, not just to certainly the population he was hoping to attract to UMass Boston, but to the rest of the city. I remember those ads, and they did to tell you who graduated from there. I found them very interesting because I actually had not thought about it before. Um, It was really important to have that happening, and and too bad that we're here where we are now. But let me just go back and ask one question. Maybe, Mike, you can weigh in on this, too. So Crosby cannot resign from his job like he would any other job and go to take this job should he be offered it? Is he mandated to serve out his term? I don't know how that works. Oh, I don't believe so. But um, he's I, just saying, he's, you're saying he just feels like 
he needs to do that. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah. his term is is mm-hmm. up eventually, and he just kind of uh, you know floated that idea, and again did some good reporting to kind of uncover that. I think that uh, you know it's kind of natural to take a look at next steps and what that would be. Whether or not there would be a formal approach from UMass to Crosby, I don't know if there would be any ethics complications between his two roles there. Um, you know, no one's trying, unless they're trying to build a casino at you know the Expo <laughs> Center. Which, well, maybe that's why I he reached out. Actually, yeah. I, was, I was interested in the fact that he reached out to indicate that he'd be interested. Mm. You know, um, you don't often hear that happening, or usually that's behind closed it's, doors. It's, it certainly shows mm-hmm. that he's probably no longer interested in remaining on the gaming commission for a second term. Oh, good point, Mike. That's why you're over at the state hall. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we drag him in. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I never would have thought of that. All right, Mike, you alerted us to this interesting piece about this Brockton employee yeah. who makes $59,000 and has petitioned the city for a waiver, which is forcing him to live in the city at this point, a city residency requirement, because he says he can't afford to live there. To live, yeah, and this is an interesting story I saw in the Brockton Enterprise, so all credit goes to them. But it's an interesting thing, and this actually will probably end up being another UMass story uh, down the road. You know, So wow. we'll, I'll get to that, but hold on. What's going on now is there is a, is a city planner in Brockton. They have a, a rule in Brockton that you know state city employees must live within the city. So he goes in front of the um, city council's finance committee and asks them for a waiver from that rule so that he can basically move back in with his parents, commute into work, save money, and pay off his student debt. Uh, he makes $59,000 a year. Uh, Brockton is, you know, a gateway city. There are affordable places to live in Brockton, so that shouldn't be too much of a problem. But the point he's trying to make here is that he's being crushed by the debt. So here is a, a kid. He's 26 years old. He has a good job, presumably with good, you know, city benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, $56,000 or $59,000 at 26 years old is not doing too, too shabby, especially mm. in public service. And uh, he still can't really afford to pay down his debt. Uh, and this is something that a lot of younger people in the workforce are are getting themselves into here. And it's kind of funny that, you know, the, the kids quoted as saying he, he got rid of cable and he's making do with just Netflix and things like that. <laughs> There's all the millennial jokes you want to make yeah. um, about how much but avocado toast he may be eating. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it is. And he went to UMass Amherst. Mm-hmm. And he still is struggling to pay off these debts. And they, he, he prepared a document, went in front of the city council, showed them the Excel sheet of all of his finances and how much he's paying. They rejected it. Um, they, they not necessarily because of his case, but they didn't want to start making exceptions to this, this rule to grant this waiver. Um, and so I, you know, and this goes into a study that was put out last week or two weeks ago now, uh, regarding, uh, debt from the public universities That's in right. Massachusetts. Yeah. And so this is a 26 year old. He's been out of UMass for say five years and he wants to pay off his debt faster, but you know, he's having trouble doing so. And, you know, it's, it's UMass Amherst. It's supposed to be the affordable school. Well, I can also say this also goes back. Back to uh, a study that came out um, last year, and we had around this roundtable uh, a group of millennials who have good jobs, like your parents would want you to have, and they're either having to live with somebody else or several somebody else's or living at home because it is so expensive across the board in Massachusetts, and they are being also crushed by debt, by school debt. So this is, you know, I thought that this is um, uh, so... Um, um, emblematic of what is happening exactly. with so many people. And you can make fun of it, but this is a real, this is going to pop up more than once where people are trying to make decisions for their lives about, I don't blame the guy who doesn't want to be crushed by debt for the rest of his life. But then you see the city side too, Jennifer, where the city says we cannot make an exception for this. 
I do think it's a little paternal for them to say, go get a roommate or do something yeah, else. I don't think they I was, need to be in his business that and, way. But. And it struck me, too, you know, um, uh, Mike makes a good point with the millennial jokes about it is yeah. that you've got young people these days um, who are really, really struggling to live in the major cities that they they would like to live in and in this case work for. They'd like he'd like to work in in the city. Um, and it's just fighting against this impression that if you're failing to self-support on your own, then you're just not trying hard enough and go get a roommate, go uh, go live in, you know, a tiny, I, tiny I don't think they apartment. have an understanding yeah. of the debt of what how crushing when we say crushing. I don't think that a lot of people in their current jobs who are looking at his case understand yeah, what that means. And, and, and the, you know? the critique that they're leveling as far as him being um, an ineffective saver. Um, it's it again, it, it's kind of failing to, to give him the credit that he may deserve for saying, look, I've got this debt. It's a reality of my life. And fortunately, my parents live close enough that that's a thing I can uses as a and they're parachute willing. Yeah. and they're willing mm-hmm. and I'd like to continue working as a city planner for the city um, and they're not really meeting him at that point. The only, yeah, the only unique part of this particular story is that he works for a municipality that has that rule on the books and that he has to go out in public and petition petition the city council right. to get that kind of waiver. This is near universal uh, experience Absolutely. for a 26-year-old yeah. college but, I, but again, I don't think that the people reviewing his case had to face that. Mm-hmm. I didn't. Yeah. I had debt coming out of college, but nothing like what I I know my niece and nephew are carrying now, or all the other millennial folks. I just didn't have that. Wasn't there just a piece yeah. the other day yes. about um, how Low, yes. there's like seventy thousand dollar a year um, yes. uh, semester universities now that are increasing in frequency around the greater Boston area? That's. I mean, we we are blessed with very very good um, schools here. Very very good secondary education. I mean, not secondary, but higher education. Education. Um, but it comes with a price. And believe me, that whatever the tuition is, is not the entire cost to the university. So everybody's in a bind. So I really, this story really has impact for me because I hear him. And I think we're going to, I think it's not, it's not going to be just one case. If you want to stop a brain drain, that's, that's my feeling again. I think if you want to stop a brain drain, you got to do something. And, and this you is, know? this is coming at a time, this story is coming at a time when we have uh, supposedly a, a humming economy, right? Massachusetts is being constantly touted as a top uh, place to live. But you're looking under the surface and you have folks like him struggling. We have a transit system that, that is struggling to, uh, to be reliable. Um, I, th- I think it just it just shows that even when all at the economic indi- indicators um, show that we're firing all cil- cylinders, there's a, still a lot under the surface that um, is malfunctioning. Well, um, here's one guy who's keeping a job uh, and not having a problem, uh, apparently, with his expenses. And that's a 22-year veteran, again, of the Springfield Police Department, who's flunked two drug tests, tried to fake a third one, and is still on the job. I, I would say he, he's gone past the three strikes. Yeah, <laughs> right yeah. There, that, but he's uh, getting yet another chance by the top guy. So, so uh, uh, one of my colleagues uh, at Mass Live, uh, Springfield Republican, uh, got got the the internal records on this, and and the police chief defended it, said, you know, listen, like this is this is the last chance agreement I brokered with him, uh, but it's one of those things where you wonder, like, uh, they're they're giving they're giving this break to this guy, uh, who's in law enforcement. Uh, when we when we usually assume higher standards, um, and we also, you know. We're, we're, 
we're also coming at a, at a point where, where more scrutiny is on law enforcement, and we expect that higher standard uh, much more often. Um, to zoom out a little bit, uh, my colleagues, uh, both Stephanie Barry and Dan Glan, have been doing great reporting on the Springfield Police Department and some of the issues there. Uh, Dan Glan reported uh, a few weeks ago that uh, Maura Healy's office has convened a grand jury uh, to look into the department and uh, how several uh, off-duty officers uh, got into a fight with a, with a man. Um, and, uh, you know, the local DA passed on that case. It looks like Healy's taking it up mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. and it's being, the grand jury seems to be uh, run out of Worcester. It's not, it's not in the Springfield area. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where, where I, I, there's I think a lot going on. there's a lot going on mm-hmm. uh, uh, with, with the Springfield police. And, and I don't think this is the last thing that we're going to hear. Um, that's my guest, Gen Dupchus of Mass Live. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And also with me is Mike Dean of WGBH News and Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. And we're talking about the local news you may have missed. Um, Mike, uh, this is bad business, it seems to me. Uh, who, el- who else gets? You know, my first reaction was... We're in this time where we're rethinking how we look at, you know, drug abuse. And if people are struggling around drug issues, you want to be empathetic around, you know, let's try to help them. And then I keep reading this guy's uh, history, and he's just kind of a bad guy all around. He's spraying people in the face with uh, pepper spray. He's under investigation for taking free or discounted rooms at a former Holiday Inn. Of all people to get four Five chances? Help me. Right. Well, um, <laughs> I, I know I can't speak for the for the police force. So I would say that, you know, they, they protect their own uh, to a certain extent. One thing that I kind of find interesting in this is that, it, you know, it could, again, says it could lead to prosecution. Uh, it has gone up the chain that high that, you know, the attorney general's office is getting involved in this type of thing, um, as well as the news media. And which which oversight function kind of came first in this. I, I don't really know. Was yeah. it, you know, the news stories that led to Healy's interest or was it, you know, Healy's interest that kind of led to the news stories? Well, this is pretty dramatic. Um, and by the name, way, his name is Officer Ramon Sierra. And he submitted the fake specimen last year, Jennifer. Yeah, I, I, I was actually struck by uh, the department's, the police department's policy officially regarding marijuana use, where they did specify that uh, even though it's legalized in, in Massachusetts to use it. They're saying, of course, because it's it's a law enforcement capacity, they're abiding by the federal laws around it. Um, and to your point about the this particular officer's history, I'm more struck by the fact that it seems to be a deeper rooted issue of potential abuses of authority or a potential disregard for, for the rules that are supposed to hem in public law enforcement officials, whether or not it's just at that department itself. Um, he's a 22-year veteran. There might be some additional leniency that the department's willing to give well, someone like that. Yeah, that's that. what the yeah. top guy is saying. He exactly. served well for 22 years. Yeah. But it's clear that you don't come to a but drug problem. But that's also 22 where, years in which you can do a lot of things right. wrong. You don't, come to a 20, you don't come to 22 years and have these kinds of flunking drug samples some of that time something else was going on. Um, and it, so, anyway. and, it, and it's also just, uh, I, I mean, faking a drug test. Yeah. It's like you're a law enforcement officer yeah. and you're expected yeah. to tell the truth. I mean, that that's kind of, that's one of those if things you where... you an issue of public trust. Right, right. exactly. And yeah. I think, again, that's that's why the, the there's there's so many eyes right now on the Springfield Police Department and, and a lot of a lot of it is of their own making. Well, and, and just the last word on this, the trust then becomes an issue for the top officer who's making a decision to give him, quote-unquote, a last, 
agreement. Come on. Uh, it, that doesn't help him in the end, you know, know what, and nor does it actually help the officer, too, if he has some real issues. Um, I want to squeeze this in, Jennifer, because we've dealt with the flooding once again after this, these last snowstorm or snow event, I guess is what you should call them. And I'm looking at the picture uh, on the front page of the Dorchester Reporter about this tidal flooding, which yeah. something has to be done. Because this is what's happening all the time. It's, yeah, Morrissey Boulevard yeah. has been underwater a lot lately. Um, it, it it floods routinely. That's why they're in the middle of this this big effort to, to redesign, raise the roads, fix it. Because it seems like every time there's a high tide at this point, the whole roadway gets shut down. Um, and, and over the last week and a half or so, we've had a few storms. We're about to have another one on Monday. And if there's a combination of rain, high tides, mm-hmm. they'll take the whole thing down entirely or just keep it down to one lane. And as anybody that drives in the area will mm-hmm. tell you, that traffic pushes out into the neighborhoods. Dorchester Avenue becomes a parking lot. Uh, all of the connection points uh, become untenable. It connects up to Day Boulevard in South Boston, which is also flooded. So there really is a conversation right now about this new reality that we're in. There these uh, high but tide events. There is a events. plan for it, so yeah, why don't there, they just do there it? There is a, a plan for it, but it's for that one stretch and they've been trying to do it for 30 years. Gin, okay. Gin also covered oh, this while he was at, at the Dot Reporter, so it's... Marty Walsh was state, was, uh, state representative. State rep at that point, yeah, so it's it's been an ongoing discussion. Um, the plans to to fix uh, to fix the roadway got pushed back a little bit actually because of Mayor mm-hmm. Marty Walsh uh, because he wanted the the planners at the State Department of Conservation and Recreation to go back to the community again um, and say did any of you not make it to the public meetings that we went to how do you feel about this proposed lane drop that would make way for bike lanes your piece says they're screaming fix it fix they, it oh, <laughs> they don't really oh, they have time are to they are that they question. are loud about that <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. where they're basically saying. <laughs> Please, we're not even at 75% design. Do something. Yeah. We've been trying for decades. This is pretty gruesome. And I think it makes a difference. When you see it happening, as we did in the last few days, you're reminded of how bad it is. Yes. And mm-hmm. it, it's been that way for years, and it's only going to get worse, presumably. Uh, it's also important to note that this would be the main road in and out of both UMass Boston and the Bayside Expo Center. And we come full circle. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. That's so, a good point. If, yes. know, again, it gets back to development. Uh, as Gin said before, the building boom isn't going to last forever. But if that infrastructure is not there, and it's not just the T, if the roadway is not there, if the night of a big game or a big concert, you have a, a particularly high tide and you have to shut down the road the stadium's on, it's also the same roadway as the former Boston Globe headquarters, yeah, right. which they're also trying to turn into a big innovation campus inside that, that building. Well, I can assure you, once it's an innovation thing, that thing They'll stopping immediately. <laughs> uh, that will be the first innovative step because oh, that's goodness. not happening. No. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you all so much for these serious stories. I tried to find a little light something, but I don't have it today. So we're, <laughs> we're out on that one. And I guess the whole story is UMass, UMass, UMass. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's it. So thank you all for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kelly. Dupchis is the State House reporter for Mass Live. Jennifer Smith is the news editor for the Dorchester Reporter. And Mike Dean is the State House reporter for WGBH News. Coming up, there is hardly a neighborhood in Boston where construction isn't thriving. 
The good news is that these new projects are creating a huge demand for skilled workers to take on new, high-paying jobs. But why is there such a lack of laborers to fill these openings? One local company is introducing a new generation of young people to the construction and trade sectors. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Last year alone, the BRA approved 71 large-scale projects that will create over 5,000 construction jobs. Boston is embracing the designer high-rise. Shiny luxury towers are sprouting up across Beantown's once drab and neglected precincts, emblems of Boston's record-breaking building boom and its rise as a bigger, more international city. Construction is booming in Boston, and the demand for skilled workers is sky-high. But the supply of local laborers with these invaluable skills is surprisingly low. The Compliance Mentor Group's Construction Mentor Program is hoping to close that gap by introducing a new generation of young, diverse, and experienced workers into the Bay State's construction sector. Here to discuss the Construction Mentor Program, Nicole Richer, founder of the Compliance Mentor Group and the Construction Mentor Program. Hello, Nicole. Hello. Christopher Hansen, field engineer and project assistant at Callahan Construction Managers and a graduate of the Construction Mentor Program. Welcome, Christopher. Hello. And also Artie Elshani, a student at Benjamin Franklin Institute of Technology who is currently in the Construction Mentor Program. Hello, Artie. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. So uh, let me start this way with you, Nicole. A report just out last week by the Boston Agent magazine written by Joe Ward said, construction trends to watch. And he said Boston had the ninth most cranes of any city in the country. Housing permits were up 12 percent over 2017. So there's a lot going on. I want people to really understand how much need there is for the people that you are working with right now. Absolutely. There's definitely a need, uh, and particularly with the students that I work with and the schools I work with, Benjamin Franklin Institute of Technology. We also partner with a local vocational high school, Madison Park, and a lot of those students need to get exposure being on a project site, a commercial project site, to take that academic experience and apply it to the real world. And we have that opportunity using the construction mentor program as an opportunity for them to see career exploration, to see the various jobs that they can get into after they graduate, understand the skill sets that they need, work on their workforce readiness skills, and transfer that knowledge, the STEM knowledge that they have in their academic studies into the project or career. Uh, We also look to bridge the aging workforce gap, which is Mm. a real big issue in the industry. Meaning that uh, some of the older folks who've been doing this for a while need to be able to pass on these skills. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If you look at some of the building trades, it's aging. Uh, An average age of a carpenter, last time I checked, was 48, 50 years old. Same thing with the laborer, electrical. 
So a lot of these trades are aging out and, and we need to replace that with emerging young talent. And that's what we really partner with our vocational schools, our post-secondary school, Benjamin Franklin, has that target demographic of the city, which typically exists of urban youth, minorities, and women. And that's really what we're trying to achieve. So I just want to, before I talk to the guys here, to make it clear that you were a former project manager for 16 to 17 years. People look at women, they don't necessarily think of you in the field, but you were in the field before you got the idea to do this program six years ago. Absolutely. And that's really what inspired me when I was transitioning into this industry. And it wasn't my first industry. Although I did take high school architecture, there was no one really championing me to go into construction management. And if I had somebody, I would have really loved it right away. But I found this later in my 20s and then just really gravitated. I had some great mentors. And it just so happened I was working in the city. And uh, we weren't doing all that we could do with our compliance efforts with working in the city and following the Boston resident job policy. So a, a client had said, we've got to do something more. And so using the uh, position I was in, I was able to influence incorporating our Uh, creating a framework for what I have now is our construction mentor program. But I was so excited and passionate about that that I eventually decided I wanted to do this full-time and created my company. So I want to get back to following those compliance guidelines and what that means and what that has meant for your company. But that's my guest, Nicole Richard. She's founder of the Compliance Mentor Group and the Construction Mentor Program. Now, I want to go over to talk to some of the guys that we have with us. Chris, you have graduated from the program and you're working. So tell us about what you do now. I'm actually, I'm a field engineer slash project assistant for, I'm working for Callahan Construction Management. Okay, well, what does that mean for the rest of us who don't quite understand what that means? What kind, what do you do uh, when you're out there every day? Responsibility, number one, is paperwork, document control. And also, um, I'm out in the field supervising, overseeing the job site, making sure everybody's safe, number one. Production, you know, is key and um, just trying to get the job done. So I think what will come out of this conversation is people understand there are so many different jobs going on that have to be coordinated by folks like yourselves. Otherwise, as you've said, there's issues around safety and other concerns, but also communication. People don't know what's going on if there's not somebody to sort of be overlooking the whole thing. When you were at Benjamin Franklin Institute and in class before you started this program, did you imagine yourself in this role? How did it change? How did the program help you see yourself really actually doing this kind of work? The program gave me an introduction to this kind of work, to the industry, because um, my background is more residential. I was, I'm familiar with construction, but my background is more residential. This is more commercial, big jobs, structural steel, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So in which the program definitely gave me an introduction and in seeing um, networking, communication, how it's key, knowing how important, you know, thinking ahead is, staying safe and, you know, the key thing as being a superintendent, project manager, anybody, you have to be good at solving problems as a manager. You know, that's key. So, And I want to point out, you graduated and you got a job right away. <laughs> this was so, hello, already, that's kind of a calling card for the program. There was no lag time here. These are good jobs paying yes. well that I think everybody can understand. That's my guest, Chris Hansen. He's a field engineer and project assistant at Callahan Construction Managers and a graduate of the Construction Mentor Program. Now, over to you, Artie. You're still in school, and I know you're at the point where you get to go out on the field. So tell me how what you learn in the classroom works together with what you've seen in the field. So when we go in the class and all the classes we had is even though we got projects in the class and assignments and labs and all that, we don't really get to go out on the side and see what's going on and what's being done from the beginning to the end. 
while this construction mentor program has made a really good connection between the theoretical knowledge we get in the school and the practical training you should have when you start the job. And this has also helped us getting a lot of networking with the other people. So after we finish the college associate degree, we can at least get a letter of recommendation from somebody that is already in the field. And, and who know, knows you because you've yeah, been in the field yeah, with, and, with them. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we actually spending two semesters with them. We're going there mostly like every month, once a month. So they actually like helping us a lot and they actually have a lot of experience. Most of them have more than 30 plus years in commercial construction. And that helps us a lot connecting the knowledge we get in school and the training we get in the site. So what do you like about construction? I'm actually an international student from Kosovo. And my dad has a company that produces uh, adhesives. Since I was little, I used to go in the job sites with my dad. And we used to go there, for example, like a week in a row every day and seeing how the project would evolve every day and the effort that people would put into making the project come up. That was really significant to me and that really left a mark in my life. And that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I was undecided what major I should change because there's a lot of different aspects of construction. And I actually just picked construction management without not even knowing what mm. it is. And now I'm really lucky and I'm really thankful that I chose this field because I was more to engineering. Mm. But I actually like construction management more than that. That's my guest, Artie Elshani. He's a student at Benjamin Franklin Institute of Technology, and he's currently in the construction mentor program. What I like about this, uh, Nicole, is there's a wide range of where your graduates can go. Artie's going in one direction. Chris is doing something else. But it all comes under this field. And and that's a lot of opportunity there. Absolutely. And mm. Callie, there's actually even more than just mm. uh, Chris and Artie's experience. Working with Benjamin Franklin, they offer a lot of different programs. Both Artie and Chris came from the construction management program, but they also have an HVAC program. What does that mean? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's basically heating, ventilation, oh, okay. air conditioning. Got you. Oh. Um, and so we, and, and boy, let me just say, if you know that, the way I am begging <laughs> these people in the summertime, please fix my air conditioning. Just a moment for personal reflection. Go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. (laughs) Definitely a necessity. Um, And so they have a a wide variety of programs that lend themselves to the careers in construction. So we refer to it as the architect engineering construction industry. And so we've taken uh, students from the different disciplines at Benjamin Franklin and the vocational trades, brought them on the job site to see career exploration. So, for example, at Benjamin Franklin, uh, in Chris's cohort, we had a student that got a job placement with a company that was uh, mentoring one of our students, a surveying company, DGT Surveying. And he had never had that exposure to a survey company, was an electrical student. Mm-hmm. And getting that experience, he really realized that this is something that he wanted to do. He also happened to be a Boston resident. He was a veteran, and he was able to work for a company now. So we've got a lot of different success stories where it can lead to jobs, but it also can help further our our mentees really understand the career, expose them to not just carpentry, plumbing, but one of our current cohorts, and Artie can attest to this as well, coming from an international background, you're thinking, how can I fit into this American culture? How is my degree and architecture going to transfer over here? And sometimes it doesn't. And so how can I fit in? So coming to the United States and coming to Harvard Business School, they've been able to see Walsh Construction and the, the team there that 
consist of field engineers, superintendents, project managers, project engineers, and say, hey, I can fit in right here, and this is what I want to aspire to when I graduate. So it's really exciting to see that transformation. And to be clear, you have a project each year or each for a time for a number of years where your students can go and be on the field. And this year it's with uh, Harvard Business School's Claremont Hall. Carmen Hall. Carmen Hall. So it's very it's a huge project, and so there's a lot, as you've just described, for the students to see and figure out where they might fit in and what they can learn and be mentored. And and a shout out to Harvard Business School because they've actually really on their capital improvement project, uh, Andy O'Brien, who's the chief of operations over there, and Paul Deedle as well, have been really supportive of our program. For the last six years, we've been on all of their major capital improvement projects from Tata Hall to the Ruth Mulan Chu Chow building to the Carmen Hall project. And Chris was on the um, Carmen Hall project as well as already. So it was a two-year cycle. Yeah. uh, Worked with Walsh. So Really excited about how they've embraced really the program. Really partnered with you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we always are yeah. looking for more developers and construction management companies to help us carry on the program and, and have more cohort of Benjamin Franklin students on different projects. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Nicole Richer, you just heard her, founder of the Compliance Mentor Group and the Construction Mentor Program. Christopher Hansen is graduate of the Construction Mentor Program, and Artie Elshani is a student at Benjamin Franklin Institute of Technology and current member of the Construction Mentor Program. We're discussing the mentoring program and how it is helping usher in a new generation of skilled workers into the Massachusetts construction industry. I would be remiss if I didn't note that there are a number of apprenticeship programs. Um, One of them actually is from in-house here for us. Let's listen to Norm Abram. He's the carpenter and cast member of This Old House, and he explains Generation Next. This Old House has decided to do something about it. We've started a project we're calling Generation Next. We want to make it easier for people to learn the building trades by providing them with scholarships for technical and vocational education. So what they are doing is the kind of the apprenticeship that people may have heard of before, where young people get into a situation where they are apprenticed for a number of years and learn a specific, a niche skill. Mm-hmm. They're adding some mentorship from the guys from this old house in addition to that. But that's, it's a little bit different from what you're doing. But I wanted to also just let our listeners hear, these are some of the construction professionals that the this old house people reached out to, just to have them tell you again about the lack of skilled workers available for high paying jobs in the construction field. It's extremely hard to find skilled labor work right now. We're having to get extremely creative with how we go about finding the next guy or kind of the next man up mentality. There's so many niches now in the construction world. Um, there's a lot of creative side of it that people don't even really realize. And obviously financially, construction can be very rewarding. So I wanted to transition out of that clip just to talk to you about extra stuff that you're layering in and your mentoring. Because one of the things I was impressed with, Nicole, is that you're teaching both hard skills, what we've just discussed here, Mm -hmm. but soft skills are really important. And that's about workforce readiness. Would you speak to that? Absolutely. And it's really needed. And I think it's a great partnership with Benjamin Franklin, where the demographic is anywhere from 18 to 40 coming in. So we have some of our students that have a really good grasp with their workforce readiness skills. Chris can be a prime example of that. His need was more networking. But other students we have that are 18, they're coming out of a program and really don't know how to network. And we also have our partnering school of Madison Park, and a lot of those students at 18 aren't familiar with how to network. So if you think about traditionally going to a four-year college, you have some opportunity to kind of mature and use family network or friends. 
to help you get your first job. Well, at 18, coming on a project site, being in the building trades, it's difficult to find your first job. And it's all about who you know and who knows you. And this is really what we're trying to instill in our program is the soft readiness skills. That could be getting up in the morning, getting on a bus, getting on a train, getting to the job site by 6 o'clock, 6.15. That's the first step for a lot of our students to do that. And from there, we work up. And we know a lot of our students fall down. And so we're not trying to say, hey, if you fail, you're out of the program. But we really want to try to work with our young people to tell them this is a real life experience. If you were getting employed by one of these subcontractors, you'd be fired if you didn't show up on time, if you didn't show up with the equipment, if you didn't show ready and eager to work. So part of our program, we're assessing our students, not only from me facilitating the program, but from the mentors, from the project team on the job site. But it's assessing our students with positive reinforcement and positive participation. We're coaching them and really mentoring them, which I think some of the other programs you mentioned do mentorship, but they target actually a different demographic. We're really working with youth and emerging young adults coming into the industry, whether it's coming in as a second career or learning something that they haven't learned, or as I said, coming in from high school, that early emerging age. So we're really trying to incorporate those soft readiness skills so that they're ready to work and really get them to learn how to network. So if they meet somebody on the job site, as already mentioned during that uh, monthly activity, as it continues on and builds throughout the year, they know how to stay in mm-hmm. touch with that. And mm-hmm. I think that's really critical. I mean, this is that success story that Chris had. Uh, I'm going to ask Chris to tell me about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, I would like to know when you arrived on the site. Now, so you've you've now gotten the school training and now you mentioned that the networking was extremely important. What about those workforce skills, that knowing just how to act and what was expected of you on the site? Tell me about how the program helped you with that. program helped me being better prepared, you know, for the workforce. It helped me out, you know, understanding the coordination of things, um, communicating more efficiently. Organization skills is key. You know, the CMP program definitely gave me exposure to that, see how things operate on the management side upon document control and stuff like that. Well, let me ask this a different way. If you had not gone through the program and you didn't have these skills that you learned through the program, you know, what would you have been lacking? What did you have to learn to close the gap on that? I'm more of a non-outspoken person, so it definitely prepped me on the communication skills and the networking because that's what I would say I was lacking on. For instance, you have to push a lot of emails throughout the day at work. You have to contact people, you know. Be respectful, you know. Understand the hierarchy on the job. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Stuff mm-hmm. like that. So. You didn't have any problem trying to get there early in the morning and all that. No, no that no. was it, okay. Yeah, it, was I, just, it was the other stuff. Yeah, I understood that dealing with waking up in the morning, going to CMP <laughs> and school, obviously, you know, okay. early morning classes. So, yeah, waking up wasn't a problem. But okay. I think you mentioned something else, Chris, that I think is really uh, valid. And you talked about how working together with other people and collaborating and solving problems. And that's something you saw firsthand with the superintendent who acts as the mayor on the job site. Mm. And really, I think, was an impression for you, Chris, and really wanted to aspire to be a a superintendent. Well, talk about that. That's kind of the route that I'm shooting for, become the lead superintendent of a wonderful company one day. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) right now, yes, definitely um, what caught my eye and, you know, got me going was, you know, the seriousness of the position as Mm -hmm. being a superintendent, you know, Mm -hmm. Chris Sanson is a field engineer and project assistant at Callahan Construction Managers and a graduate of Construction Mentor Program. So, Artie, networking, what did you learn about networking? What have you learned? You're still in the program. What made the difference for you that you can tell? So, 
being just in school, you actually like just learn from the teachers and you just see like these big companies, but you actually like those big companies, you cannot just directly contact them. You got to have an inside person to actually contact with them. So being in this program and Nicole showing us the different kind of software and different kind of applications such as LinkedIn, mm -hmm. where you make like network with people and they see your resume and everything in there. And also like just meeting people in person and getting their business cards helps a lot because most of them, they just say like, shoot me an email, an email anytime and ask for anything you want. Even the CEO of Walsh Brothers, he said like, my office door is always open. You can come in and talk to me anytime. So that that's actually uh, made me think differently about how the construction industry is doing because I thought it's going to be like really hard and it's going to be like, to make a contact. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm, to make a contact mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. to actually have a conversation with somebody. Mm -hmm. But actually, when we went there, I, I thought I saw it was opposite. People want to talk to you. And as soon but as you got to get in first, so yeah. you got to know somebody that knows somebody. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's what's that, yeah. that is the key. Right. Yeah. right? And as far yeah. as you're respectful yeah. and you respect them and you do what you, your duties and you have full concern about the uh, everything in the job site, you're going to do fine. Did you have any problem ma making sure you had those workforce skills, that getting up and being there at uh, 6.30 and no, all that? No, I didn't that? have any problem with <laughs> getting up, even though sometimes uh, we had a lot of homework from school and we had to stay up all night. We were a little sleepy maybe some days, but I didn't have any problem with that. Yeah, because everybody on that side had to get up <laughs> and be there, right, yeah. to, to make sure that they took care of it. There are three phases to your program, Nicole. We should make it clear that people apply and that at each phase, you see if people have grown, they either get phased on to the next one or phased out at that point because it's tough. So you had eight people in the last group. So we'll go to Benjamin Franklin, and we also will go to the high school art project team. This, in this case, it's Walsh Brothers on the Carmen Hall Project. And so we will go to the school and we do our pitch presentation that really informs students about what the construction mentor program is and how it's helped some of our past students. So Chris Hansen and some of our past cohorts have come and spoken and talked about the value that they've had. And so we'll get some application. And as you said, it is a phase program. Our first phase is our group learning phase. And we'll have the most amount of students come onto the job site for half a day. And we go through workshops that really introduce students to what construction management is, what are the different roles that each person on the team has, and really get them a certain comfort level of, of confidence being on a large project. You know, it's difficult for them not being on a, a project, as Chris said, to really feel comfortable and having that confidence yeah, and feeling comfortable. Overwhelming. So now one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I want to make sure we get to is that there's a certain compliance level. You have compliance in, in the title of your group, Compliance Mentor Group, because there are some rules and regulations about who gets to work on these jobs in Boston. And so you knew about this and you sort of formulated your company to address both the gap in folks like Chris and Artie, but also to meet the needs of this compliance. Right. So um, I mentioned before the Boston resident job policy, and then the last year they've actually changed their policy to increase more residents, minority, and females on the project site. So it used to be 50, 25, 10. Now it's 51, 40, and 12. Mm. And those numbers are difficult to achieve. Uh, so the BRJP realizes that it's hard for in this construction boom that all of the construction management companies are going to comply. But what they're really looking for is a compliance effort. And the construction a management significant program, one. A Not significant just a one that shows that one. you're making an effort okay. um, to reach out to the new talent coming okay. in. And so this, the construction mentor program is definitely seen as a compliance effort working with a collaboration of schools, 
the construction management team, the unions, the subcontractors to bring in new talent. And so that's really where we work with our compliance. We also do compliance monitoring, but with regard to the construction mentor program, it's really showing that best faith effort that in turn has actually helped students work on the project site and contribute to the workforce percentages that we talk about. I just want to point out that there are women in the program. They were just away. We couldn't have them for this particular conversation, but there are. And there's a big push by the state, actually, to make sure that more women get into the construction field. There's all kinds of advertising. That would seem to fit with what you're doing as well. Well, absolutely. And I think there could be more of an effort. And I think working with Benjamin Franklin and Madison Park, we realized that in order for us to maintain, in the city of Boston at least, the future of the construction industry, we really need to actually go to the middle schools and really recruit and get students excited because they don't have any more industrial arts program. When I was in in middle school, I could take woodworking or I could take shop. They don't have that Mm, anymore. So there's no way for these young girls to see that there's an opportunity. And as I started off the program, I took architectural drafting. I took mechanical drafting. But at that time, no one was championing Mm. me to go into construction management. So I didn't go into construction management. I think construction management has done a lot of recruiting and efforts, and there are a lot more women in project management position and executive positions. There could be more, but definitely in the building trades, there's just not. And so we really need to do Mm. a better job industry-wide with the whole AEC industry. So let's go just a quick around and tell me what excites you about this work and why are you glad to be in it? Artie, I'll start with you. Just building uh, some place for other people to help our community. And I think as technology is evolving and the construction is evolving, we building better community. And how does that make you feel? Uh, that uh, feels us great okay. doing something for the community. And Chris, same question to you. How, how do you feel doing this work? I feel great. Mm. This is what I wanted to do since I was a kid. So Building something. Building things, mm-hmm. seeing, you know, create, you know, creating things, you know, watching the guys work as a team, getting it done, you know. This is great, you know, construction. It's my career. That's what I like. <laughs> and the check's not bad. I'm just going to add. <laughs> Nicole, um, for yourself, um, how proud are you of yourself? You should be for building this and making some opportunities for other people. Well, there's so many levels mm. that I'm passionate about. It's my own company. I'm a minority women-owned business. So that in itself, I feel good about. But I feel good about collaborating with schools where their resources are limited and being that extension for them and reaching out to industry partners and champions to help them fill a role that's missing for them. So that's really rewarding. But at the end of the day, I'm really excited and proud of Chris's advancements and Artie and just looking at past cohort mentees and current and hopefully future that we are able to make an impact and change their lives where in the past they might not have had that exposure or that opportunity. So that's really rewarding for me. Well, it's been a great conversation and I thank all of you for joining me. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nicole Richer is the founder of the Compliance Mentor Group and the Construction Mentor Program. Christopher Hansen is a field engineer and project assistant at Callahan Construction Managers and a graduate of the Construction Mentor Program. And Artie Elshani is a student at Benjamin Franklin Institute of Technology who is currently in the Construction Mentor Program. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swaye is our producer. 
Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.